0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Kaspar. What practical, progressive, political lessons can we learn from corporate theme parks ad campaigns, video games like Grand Theft Auto, Celebrity Culture, and Las Vegas? In his new book, Dream, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy, our guest today, Stephen Duncombe, makes the case for a progressive political strategy that embraces a new set of tools. Although fantasy and spectacle have become the lingua franca of our time, Duncombe points out that liberals continue to depend upon sober reason to guide them. Instead, they need to learn how to communicate in today's spectacular vernacular, not merely as a tactic, but as a new way of thinking about and acting out politics. Duncombe teaches the history and politics of media and culture at the Gallatin School of New York University. He's also the author of Notes from Underground, the editor of The Cultural Resistance Reader, and the co-author of The Bob-Haired Bandit. Stephen Duncombe, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. What inspired you to write this book? Was there a particular point in time where you said... I've had it. I'm fed up with uh, the way things are going in, in the uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Or is this something that's been building for a long time?
1: I, it's really something that's been building for a long time. I've been an activist uh, for about 20 years, actually including an elected official of the Democratic Party on the, mm. on the lowest levels. Um, and I've been engaged in organizing protests, organizing community groups, and so on. And one of the things that I noticed is that we were organizing either you know either demonstrations or political organizations which we ourselves were not too enthusiastic about. That is, is, we'd sort of follow a model. And the model for the protest, for example, went something like this. You tell people where to show up. Uh, You negotiate with the police where you're going to march, then you march there, and then you get to a place at the end and you stand around and you listen to some people tell you what you already know, and then you go home or maybe you go to a preordained arrest area and get arrested. (laughs) And I had done this for 15 years, and I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And what was interesting is that there was other things that were happening out there I was involved, tangentially, with ACT UP. This is not how they did their demonstrations. I got very involved with a group, International Direct Action Group, Reclaim the Streets, in which their demonstrations were taking over street and having a party. And so it wasn't just me that was dissatisfied. There's all these sorts of folks who were part of the progressive movement, who were dissatisfied with the idea of how demonstrations were structured, and also dissatisfied with how organizations were structured.
2: When you were involved with ACT UP and the street theater stuff, did you see a completely different reaction from within the demonstration itself? Were you seeing more enthusiasm, and were you also seeing people outside the demonstration being more actively or more engaged?
1: Definitely both, and I okay. think that it's important when doing any sort of organizing to think about your audiences, um, both in the internal audiences the demonstrations were a lot of fun. Meetings were a lot of fun. Enact mm-hmm. um, Up or Reclaim the Streets or this group, uh, Community Group Lower East Side Collective, which I co-founded a while back. It embraced parts of us that were unpolitical. Parts of us that that had desire and joy and what have you. But also very importantly is that it made a more effective spectacle for the outside world. That is, um, one of the things that you have to always think about when organizing any sort of political demonstration is how is it going to appear to the others? How is it going to be mediated? And we were creating with these groups spectacles that actually sort of cut through the clutter. If you have a large protest march at this point, um, unless you do something different, you're going to be compared to the last protest march. And if you don't turn out more people, people are going to call it a failure. I wanted us to get out of that model and instead start thinking about, okay, well, what is a way to display ourselves to the world, but also display ourselves in a way that's ethical, that is, in a way that actually bespeaks the very values that we have.
0: Spectacle is a major theme in your book. In yeah. fact, even the cover of it, is is—is that the Sahara in Las Vegas? It's the Dunes. Oh, the Dunes. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, right. I was trying to That's... figure out which one it was. I knew it was a desert <laughs> theme yeah. there, but uh, it's Dream in the Dunes uh, Neon. Liberals are inclined to distrust spectacle and, and not like Las Vegas. Well, first of all, uh, why is that?
1: Well, I think for some good reason. His spectacle is by and large been the property of the other side, um, whether it be sort of fashion, or authoritarianism, or advertising and commercial culture, is that these are the folks that have really engineered spectacles so well. Think of the Nuremberg rallies. Or That's think what, of yeah. you know, George Bush's landing on the USS Abraham Lincoln. Or think of a television advertisement. Or think of Las Vegas. But what I'm interested in is a couple of things about that. One is, does spectacle have to be? either fascist, authoritarian, or commercial? Or can it actually speak a different message? The other thing I'm interested in Spectacle is it's popular. And the name of the game in a democracy with politics is you have to be popular. You have to have people that want to engage in your struggle. Now, Las Vegas is intensely popular. And it's popular even though they've legalized gambling around the country and Indian reservations and offshore. It remains popular. And one of the things that Las Vegas does is it gives people a spectacle. But when I started looking at Las Vegas, what fascinated me was that there was something it was useful to learn about that spectacle. If you go to Las Vegas, you see New York, New York. You see Paris. You see the Luxor. You see the Bellagio. But what's fascinating about these spectacles is they don't pretend to be the real. They don't stand in for reality. No one is fooled. No one thinks that, you know, the Statue of Liberty being across the street from the Eiffel Tower is really how reality works, yet it's entertaining and fun nonetheless. I thought, well, this gives us a lesson of how to stage partly an ethical spectacle, is that you create a spectacle which you announce to the world is a spectacle. The the spectacle that George Bush engineered on landing on the USS Abraham Lincoln was a replacement for reality. That is, you were supposed to think of him as a war hero when really he ducked out of Vietnam. What I'm interested in is spectacle not that replaces reality, but says, hey, the reality is we are a spectacle. And Las Vegas proves that that can actually be highly entertaining and very popular.
2: I'm going to go back to an example of popular culture that in some ways does that twisting that I think you're talking about, going way back to the commercial that Apple computers ran, the famous 1984 commercial, in which it was a spectacle. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, it's kind of, it turns it around in a way that left an impression and uh, people remember Yes. In, a, in a popular culture context.
1: I think so. And I think one of the things I tried to do in this book is I look at four sites of popular spectacle. Las Vegas, advertising, celebrity culture, and video games like Grand Theft Auto. And why I'm looking at those is, one, is because they're very popular. I'm trying to figure out why they're so popular. But two, the best and the brightest <laughs> are creating these things. These are smart people that are creating the Apple ad, mm-hmm. and they understand that to sell a spectacle as a straight-out spectacle doesn't work that well, but instead, if you can sell a spectacle that basically says, okay, look, you know what you're watching actually is a spectacle, leaves people in a different position, and it makes them actually, instead of saying, oh, Apple's trying to fool me, it says, well, actually, you know, Apple just tried to entertain me.
2: And we're in on it. Yeah,
1: and we're in on it. Yeah. And that can either be sort of a cynical, ha-ha, wink, ironic, you're still going to buy the product, or it can be saying... Saying, look, one of the things that we're attracted to are these images, are these sort of ideas, fantasies, desires, and dreams, and they're okay as long as we understand that they're just dreams.
0: We're speaking with Stephen Duncombe, the author of Dream Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy. You mentioned Grand Theft Auto, the violent and very successful video game. Can you talk a little about uh, alleged progressive Hillary Clinton's press conference calling for government regulation of that game? A
1: friend of mine, uh, an organizer, once said, all politics is theater, just some of it's bad theater. Um, And and, uh, what Hillary Clinton did is she held a press conference to essentially denounce Grand Theft Auto, the video game. Now, Grand Theft Auto, the video game, is apocalyptically violent. There's no way of getting around that. All the critics are right. It's, It's violent, it's misogynistic, and so on. It's also incredibly popular. And so one has to deal with that popularity. One has to try to understand why it is popular and whether one can actually work with that popularity and move it someplace else. What Hillary Clinton did instead is she held a national press conference, brought a bunch of good government groups there, and they all stood up in front of the cameras wearing their nice suits and all of the middle-aged and essentially told people, the audience, the American public, that this is bad for you, and we know it's bad for you, and we're going to take it away from you. They're going to use interstate laws, commerce laws, in order to regulate this you could not have had a press conference scripted better by Karl Rove. It essentially played out exactly how the right wing has sold the Democratic Party or tried to sell the Democratic Party to the country, which is a bunch of regulators who want to take away your fun. And here we're a bunch of people, uh, very prestigious, very influential Democrats and liberals essentially playing into that script. It was unbelievable. At one point, one of the uh, journalists asked, have any of you played the game? And on public television, they said no. I have never done it, down the line. And so it basically comes across as a bunch of people saying, eat your spinach and don't have fun. Now, what could have happened is instead Hillary Clinton and these Democrats and these good government groups could have asked the question of, why are people attracted to these things? Yes, maybe part of it is, you know, the vicarious blood and guts, you know, the sort of uh, the animal kingdom part of us. But also if you play the game, what you realize is that part of the fun is exploring this massive meta-universe and having a certain control there and a mastery of the space. It's also about the openness of the architecture. Yes, to complete the mission, you're supposed to turn right, but you can always turn left, and you can turn another left, and you can get on a highway, and you can go to another city within this video game world and actually abandon the mission entirely. That is, it gives room to explore. And so much of politics today is not about a room to explore. Instead, it's about the professionalization of politics. You give your money to the earnest person with a clipboard, A professional does the job for you, a lawyer then files a lawsuit, then it gets made into a bill and so on and so forth, and it locks the person out. That's not a democratic politics. That's a politics of expertise.
2: You call it theater, and I, having been around politics for an, a long time, I call it k- bad kabuki. <laughs> because, it, it, because because you would almost put the makeup on these people and march them out on stage, and they go through what is sort of the Tipper Gore routine, the uh, the Bill Clinton with Sister Soldier, the, yes. the whole idea is to show it. you're indignant over this, and by God, you're going to do something about it. It's It goes back to, it's, it's a musical where the guy gets up, and we've got trouble in. Oh, we got you out of the capital
1: T The Music Man Yeah, exactly. The Music Man and But it, The Music Man is fascinating It's a great example because what he did is he then took that and turned it into something
2: else Right uh-huh. you know, and, 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 that's, and that's the feeling that you have yeah. as, a, as a voter sitting there is they're insulting my intelligence yes, exactly. They think that uh, this is going to appeal to me that I'm some yahoo unsophisticated who's going to somehow react in a way but it's more than that because we know we're supposed to react this way yeah. They've gone through the game They're so going We work
1: out the tired script, but it doesn't really invigorate us, and so we stay home. And the thing is, is what's interesting about a place like Las Vegas is if they did that, people wouldn't come. Yeah. yeah. And so they can't do that. (laughs) They have to figure out a whole other system. And that's how I think progressives can learn from even things that we find atrocious. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, are there people doing this sort of uh, good dream work today?
1: There definitely are people doing this sort of good dream work today. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say that particularly pre-9-11, the tenor of a lot of demonstrations, progressive demonstrations, had really turned theatrical. If you uh, can recall, say, Seattle or a lot of the other um, anti-WTO demonstrations, they were really more carnivals than they were demonstrations. They were open, they were performative, they were playful, and they were chaotic, and sometimes you had no idea what the message was and so on. And I'm not trying to paint a rosy portrait of it, but there was something else going on there, and they attracted a lot of people. There's also groups like Billionaires for Bush, who I'm involved with, who also use play acting as a way to get out a very serious message. Now, Billionaires for Bush are interesting because while they play billionaires, we don't really look like billionaires. We look like figures out of Monopoly. Uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's, again, it's one of the things that I talk about. One of the ingredients of an ethical spectacle is transparency, mm-hmm. is this idea that you're not trying to fool people. I like to say Illusion may be necessary, but delusion is not. Right, and we're interested in illusion, but we're not interested in delusion.
2: Are you uh, familiar with the work of the Yes Men? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And that fits into this. this
1: yeah, m- and, they, and because one of the things that the Yes Men are doing is sort of using spectacle to reveal the truth mm-hmm. about these, uh, you know, these corporate bodies.
0: In a way, they're using the lesson of Grand Theft Auto in that they're becoming the other. Yeah.
2: To show what what the, what the truth it's how is, how
1: horrifying the other really is. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Have you have you seen their documentary by any chance? No, I have not. It's seen just that when they get up in front of these uh, corporate types and essentially propose slavery <laughs> as as a way of controlling uh, costs, it's, it's really quite remarkable to see the reaction on the part of professional people in in that environment. So. Right,
1: because they take a logic and move it to its illogical extreme. Yeah, yeah. It's also, I think, what's important is that they piggyback off of a pre-existing spectacle, these conferences yeah. and these very elite get-togethers like Davos and so on, yeah. and they use yeah. that and then move it someplace
0: else. Now, you've uh, spoken, we've spoken about the yes-men and, and uh, billionaires for Bush. There's also, you mentioned Reverend Billy in the Church of Stop Shopping, Right. but all these people are pretty much on the outside, even though they're influential, how do we get to somebody like Hillary Clinton? Or I, mean, I don't want to get to her necessarily, but how do we make this a little bit more mainstream? And well,
1: I, I sent Nancy Pelosi a book. <laughs>
0: well, there you go. <laughs> oh, That's a good one.
1: Well, I, you know, what I think is that the Democrats really have to take a page from the Republican Party. Hmm. The Republican Party was literally in the desert from the New Deal up until Nixon. They were wandering in the desert, they were out of power, and even the people they put up for president look liberal. Think of something like Dwight Eisenhower um, would be considered a flaming liberal at this point. What they did is that they looked to their margins. They looked to the people that were wandering out there in the desert, and they learned from them. Because those people had ideas which seemed fantastic at the times. Things like doing away with Social Security or privatizing Social Security, doing away with the welfare state. But the Republican Party turned to those people and said, we're, essentially, we have no ideas left what are your ideas? You can see what happened is starting with Ronald Reagan, who was considered a far-right candidate, essentially you've seen the ascendancy of the Republican Party. And people like Carl Grove and Grover Norquist were really people that were on the fringe that had been brought to the center. The Democratic Party has done the exact opposite. What they've done under the DLC is move to the center. And I think that's a, a huge mistake. What the Democrats should be doing is looking to their margins because ironically, these people that are on the margins, and they are marginal, they're marginal protest movements, have a better understanding of how the center works ironically than the centrists who are caught in this stale sort of routinization of politics that you described.
2: My fear I'm going to express my fear in all this is the Democrats have managed to regain a measure of power with the last election in which it in some way validates their vapid and vacuous agenda yes. and that they haven 't learned anything all that they are the beneficiaries of a incredibly <laughs> inept well and yeah and, and the most inept administration yeah. maybe in the Republic's history so they got a thumping and they, they didn't get this lesson and they spent 12 years out of power and I'm fearful that they are somehow validated this is the problem when you're talking about the Republicans they have an agenda yes. they have an agenda they have a they, dream they have a dream. And the, yeah, they have a dream for America, and the Democrats are the anti-dream. Yep. If you can't muster enough political will to uh, combat uh, this president, who is low in ratings, nobody wants his policies to be enacted, if you can't muster some backbone now, when are we going to do something like that?
1: I agree wholeheartedly with you. I also think that there are plenty of very smart and perceptive people in the Democratic Party and in even Democratic leadership, and I think they do know that they won as anti-Republicans and that they have to put forth a dream of their own, in order to actually win the next election cycle and go forward. Because right now, they are an anti-party. And that can work as a protest for a little bit, but it can never actually get people out to the polls to vote for you in a positive way. Just think about how advertising works. Advertising isn't about we're not A. Mm -hmm. It's about you will be a. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats have to make that same sort of argument. They have to say, this is where we're going to take you. This is the sort of transformation we're going to make in your lives. <laughs> Every single advertisement, by and large, makes that sort of promise, even if the transformation is, we're going to make you into a savvy, ironic customer. Um, they still make that promise of the magical transformation. It's what the Republicans have done. It's what the Democrats did incredibly successfully from the 1930s until the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s. And I think that the Democrats know this. Certainly, They're not in practice, (laughs) Uh, and they're going to have to change the way they think about doing politics. And I hope I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) know this
0: is backtracking a little, but did they just get lazy, or was there a point in time that they got fearful? Why is it that they lost that edge? That's
1: actually a very good question. I actually think part of it has to do with they got lazy, Um, Mm -hmm. is that you stay in power for 45 years, 50 years, and you start getting lazy. And also the other thing is, is the dream creators. Politicians never create dreams. If they're smart, they tap into dreams. But the classic dream creators, labor unions, protest movements, and so on and so forth, either fell apart or got too radical for the Democratic Party. And so that they actually couldn't embrace those dreams or those dreams weren't there to tap into. And so part of it was, you know, they got lazy. Part of it was you always have to generate social movements which are going to create these dreams. We can't really expect Hillary Clinton to come up with a dream because her dream, since she's been very young, has to been in power. And that's mm-hmm. basically it. <laughs>
2: there, there, there are a couple of things that are going back to when the Republicans really seized control of the agenda in the country. It was about 94. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's telling to me, and it goes along with what you're saying, I believe, that when they put together the Contract for America... They ran it an ad or two in, uh, I believe, TV Guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about what you're saying and what they did that works in that on that level that yeah. that they would put that in the TV Guide as a political uh, manifesto.
1: And there's two ways to look at that. The one is, oh my gosh, it's horrible. It's all politics been lowered to the level of another TV program. And I think it is something we should be concerned with, okay? Um, On the other hand, TV Guide was, at one time, I'm not sure if it still is, it was the largest selling magazine in America. And now the Democrats might sort of look down their nose at that and say people really should be reading The Washington Post and The New York Times. But look, this is what people are reading. So Mm. what do you want to do about that? Do you want to feel good about yourself and say that everybody actually should be reading The New York Times? Or do you want to say, well, people are reading this. And why are they reading
0: right. it? Yeah. And it's aligning yourself with a uh, a vehicle for entertainment and dreaming and fantasy, which yeah. is television.
2: Going back to you were saying that Democrats are maybe in the process of developing an agenda that speaks to what people really want to know more about their dreams in this this hundred hours. That Nancy Pelosi came out with, in which they were going to uh, pass a number of bills. I believe they had six or seven objectives. And so far, they were able to get them through the House. Of course, there's the sniping on the part of the Republicans, but at least they did this.
1: I think that the problem is this, though. And I'm actually, I think Nancy Pelosi's done a pretty good job. I'm very enthusiastic about some of the things that they've pushed forward. The problem is there's no dream wrapped around it. Mm -hmm. Um, That is, is that their individual good policies. But they there's no new deal. There's no yeah. vision of how do these things fit together. I mean, what, you know, Lakoff talks about sort of the progressive frame. I might not always agree with Lakoff's what he, how he wants to frame things, but I think he's absolutely right about that people need to be able to say, oh, these are components of a package, and well, what is the package? To use, again, corporate speak, what's the brand?
2: Yeah, there, there is not a Democratic brand.
1: No. And in fact, the Democrats have tried at one time to make that their brand that we have no brand, that we are free-thinking individuals who just are into policy and tinkering with things pragmatically. That's by default. I don't think that captures the hearts and minds of the American people.
2: We're speaking with uh, Stephen Duncombe, and the book is Dream, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy.
0: I find this fascinating. What makes it fascinating is there's a to me at least, there's a first step that you have to take that it's completely uncharted. Yes. Uh, it, and that's what's, what frightens people away from it, and I think that's why we, we're left with the situation that we're in, in the progressive movement.
1: I, I, I think so. I mean, we used to be incredibly bold. We were The repository of dreams. I mean, who said, I have a dream after Mm. all? And what were things like socialism and feminism and idea of civil rights and accept a dream and democracy? And somehow we've lost our capacity to dream, and it is risky. Mm.
2: But really, at this point, what do we have to lose? Going back to what you mentioned uh, just a minute ago, the New Deal. We need a new deal. The America, it, the loss of manufacturing, environmental policy, world, global warming, all these things. You know, we need we need to fashion something that says the future can be better.
1: I agree. I mean, I think so much of progressive policy or liberal policy is framed in terms of holding on to what little we have. Yeah. That's not inspiring. It's t- true we need to do that. But instead you have to say, well, this is what we're offering and this is where we we want to lead people. This is where we want to go. And I think there's plenty of evidence if you look at popular culture and mass culture and commercial culture, horrifying uh, yeah. stuff, a lot of it, but there's plenty of evidence in there of what these popular dreams are. Now, how they're manifested within a consumer society is is not pretty often but that doesn't mean they can't be manifested differently one of the things i think is important to look at with the new deal and the same with the civil rights movement is that we tend to remember them around their policies or what the battles they won or when the civil rights movement we sort of make Martin Luther King into a saint Martin Luther King was a master strategist of among other things spectacle FDR's new deal was sold um, it was not a popular program, but it was sold, and they created ideas of how to capture people's dreams. Right. And they did it in a way that's very different than it happens on Madison Avenue or happens in George Bush the movie. And so I think we can learn from these things.
2: Yeah. I, I, think, I think you're right. It, it took a couple years to put the New Deal together, and it's taken them 50 years to, to dismantle it. Yes. Stephen Duncombe, we're, we are out of time. The, the book is Dream, Reimagining Progressive Politics in an Age of Fantasy. Thank you very much for being on Weekly Signals.
1: Thank you. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm
2: Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.